0: Well, hey, uh, I'm super excited to talk to you. I came across uh, you doing a couple of interviews on channels that we probably share some overlap with that we watch um, on YouTube and on podcasts and all the rest. And you were talking about this book that you recently put out just a couple of months ago that we mentioned earlier, Black Victim to Black Victor. And I'm excited for you to unpack that for my audience and, and um, just the idea uh, behind the title, um, some of the chapters that you get into, but I'm really excited to see where we go because you have the whole second or the last quarter of your book at least is all around solutions and so maybe it's even a third of your book when you break down the pages so you're not just dunking on a problem or giving up uh easy knockdown arguments and scarecrow caricatures you're actually providing solutions at least suggested solutions and i really appreciate that man so i'm excited to talk with you um, to unpack all of that
1: yeah um so just in general, and I'm glad you brought up the solutions, um, you know, when I was going through the writing process, uh, like you said, I, I didn't, I didn't want to be the person who was just complaining and pointing out a problem. Um, you know, I, I kind of go back to uh, funny enough a person that I actually disliked at my old job, but he made it one time a good point. Um, you know, if you're going to point out a problem, try to have a solution behind it. Because um, otherwise, you just sound like you're complaining. Um, so I wanted to point out possible solutions, um, and not only solutions that seem like fantastical, like um, you know, cure racism. You know, which a lot of a lot of what activism goes on today is very fantastical. Fantasical. Uh, fantasical uh, you understand the word I'm trying to say. This is very like <laughs> non-realistic, <laughs> non-realistic yeah. kind of phrases. Um, you know, you know, to end hatred, Uh, you know, hatred is part of the human condition. Uh, You know, it's, it's impossible to get rid of. Um, Mm -hmm. The only thing you can try to do is mitigate it and, and try to persuade people to steer away from these things that we have inside of us, that is very easy to go towards. Um, So a lot of what I talk about is reunification, finding commonality with other people, um, you know, understanding the importance of family, um, finding God within your life, um, you know all these different things that are very realistic, that are everyday things that people practice. Uh, but maybe we just don't think about it enough when it comes to problems that exist within the Black community and, and the, the relations between uh, Black Americans and white Americans or, or any other demographic um, you know, these are very, uh, I would say universal practices. Mm-hmm. So I, I like to say like the book is, is a, it's a description of what's going on in black America. It's like a case study. However, these are, these are principles that could be applied to any culture um, around the world. You know, the idea of being a victim uh, when you may have the capability of overcoming and I believe that God has given us the ability to overcome, you have the strength to move forward, even if it seems like things around you are falling apart. And it is human resili- uh, resilience that has kept mankind going throughout the centuries. And even when times seem to be the worst, somehow people find ways to celebrate life, to find love in God, and to keep moving forward. So I think these are these are very uh, important things to always keep in mind when it comes to what are your issues in your life? Um, you know, are you partly responsible for your outcome, which, in my opinion, everyone is partly responsible for their outcome, even in the, in the worst of uh, tragedies, you have some sort of responsibility. And that's not to take, um, that's not to point the finger at someone, that's to say that you have the power to change it if you're the one who put yourself in that predicament. Um, so it's just, I wanted to have very good general principles and things that are tangible for people to, to gravitate towards.
0: This is good. And, and I want to get to a lot of that because you root a lot of that in the individual, which I think is super important. There's a larger conversation going on in culture right now around around what women might call rights, which is super important, like human beings made in the image of God, we have, we should have equality of rights and all the rest. But um, part of being made in the image of God also means there, there's, there's a commission within the creation of humanity. And, and uh, even if that's just a pattern that's laid out in Genesis, and not so much a science textbook, it's sort of a pattern for being on the one hand, treat mm-hmm. one another with equality, each and every person is made in the image of God and that being made in the image of God comes with a commission. you got to do things that are consistent with being made in the image of God, and that what we might, is what we might call responsibility, um, and so you always have this, this sort of tension right, and balance right. between rights and responsibility, and some of that cashes out politically, I think, and in, in sort of a left and right dynamic, which I don't I don't even prescribe to one side of that, which I know you would be in a similar camp there, it's, but but those two do hold one another intention, rights and responsibility. Yeah. You need both, right? And so let's, let's get into that eventually, but let's unpack the title of your book before we do it, because you're bringing up this, it's sort of a, I don't think, unnecessarily provocative title, but it's sort of this, this title that's playing on this narrative within culture of a Black victim. But you're saying you want to move from Black victim to Black victor. Where did the title come from? Why would you write the book? Let's unpack some of that before we get into the solutions.
1: Sure. Um, so when I started writing the book, uh, initially I didn't know where the book was going to lead me towards. Um, you know, I just to kind of give you like a little bit of background. I started writing shortly after uh, the George Floyd incident last year, and I didn't like the way the discussion was going. It it seemed outside of the George Floyd incident itself, which is very nuanced and it is complicated and it's tragic. Um, The discussion went from George Floyd's incident being indicative of what the black male experience is in America. And that is a completely different topic. And so uh, what I find a lot is they take one situation, make it appear that it's happening everywhere for everyone. and especially when you do that for a group of people, that to me makes no sense. And on top of that, the numbers don't bear that in mind either. You know, George Floyd incident is extremely rare, uh, and and I wanted to I wanted to write about it in a way um, that made sense, and and kind of talk about what is the most important thing to to kind of encapsulate, and. It's the narrative that we are victims. We are inherently victims because of our history, uh, because of my skin tone. You, as a white person, see me as something completely different just inherently. It doesn't matter who you are as an individual. It doesn't matter who I am as an individual. And and it's those things that I find very disempowering. Uh, It takes away your agency as someone and it takes away my agency. It says that you have no control over who you are, and I have no control over who I am. And so, let uh, whatever is going to happen is going to happen simply because of our superficial skin color. These type of narratives are very damaging to all people, not just black people. Um, you know, so when you see these people who are running around, who are white, who are saying black lives matter, and feel that they need to, uh, you know. Oh, you know, virtue signal for black people and and, and go above and beyond and feel guilty and, and all these different things. That doesn't do anybody any good. You know, no virtue signal has helped anybody. It makes that person feel better because they think that they're doing something positive. Mm. And I understand that. But realistically, that does nothing. You know, no, no person saying, I, you know, I, I'm sorry for my. For my, uh, you know, white racism that I am inherently born with, uh, does absolutely nothing for me. I care about the same things that that person cares about. You know, I care about going to work every day, paying my bills, taking care of my son. Those are the things that I care about, and you care about those things too. Those are universal factors for adults. And so, uh, you know, this idea that I am inherently a victim, I am Americans, uh, America's. Um, perpetual victim and that we always need saving, to me is disempowering for black people. And that puts us at a lower status, even though they're claiming to want to bring us to a higher status. It, it takes away all of our power. If you wanna go strictly based off of uh, you know, the collective, it takes away my power as a black person and gives it all to you. And by the good graces of you, as someone who is white, Thank you for allowing me to finally become something better. Like, and that's, that's, to me, that's offensive. That's saying that I'm incapable of doing for myself strictly because of my skin color. And that makes zero sense to me. And it it, it can only survive in an environment where being a victim is, is highlighted. It's perfectly fine. It's acceptable for me to portray myself as a victim. You know, it's perfectly fine for me to say it's because I'm black. And nobody would question that, you know. Maybe somebody behind the scenes would roll their eyes, but no one's going to call me out on that, you know. Or is it because of my behavior? Is it because of my attitude? Is it because of my actions? You know, it, it's those particular things that, um, you know, I, I just don't like when people try to take away other people's agency. Uh, whether it be black people or a, or any other person that you think is inherently a victim or someone who is put in a in a in a negative position for whatever reason, accepting the the, the ability to accept responsibility is empowering. Mm-hmm. And so I try to use my story within it, where there were times in my life that I felt like a victim. Uh, you know, I talk about not growing up with my father and how that affected me and how it was a struggle. And, and, be, and feeling like a victim didn't mean no good in that, in that sense. And it wasn't until I removed that mindset and I started to believe in myself, look within myself, accept God in my life, especially, that's when my life started to really take off and really, really turn around. And it's those, it's those things that if I stayed in that victim mindset, I wouldn't be where I am today. There's no way I would have written a book. Like I I just I I wouldn't be at at a progressed level. And the victim mentality always holds a person back. It doesn't matter what they look like. Um, and, and it, it's something that I really wanted to gravitate towards because right now in America, being a victim is trendy. And so if you're a woman, you're a victim to male oppression. If you're black, you're a victim to white oppression. Uh, you know, the, the list goes on and on. Everybody's trying to find a way to feel like a victim. And all that does is bring down, bring us all down as a country. Um, and, and it's something that I am very concerned about in general.
0: Yes, because it, it inevitably, it necessarily tribalizes us when we start thinking in those patterns and ways that you're talking about, um, of yeah. By finding your identity, and it's not just a mentality, it's literally finding your identity as a victim, um, and, and it's it's such yeah. a tension because you brought it up earlier, like some people legitimately are, and you can think of, you could imagine like horrible atrocities where someone has no, they didn't even put themselves in a situation, they were just a victim of a heinous act or crime, like that happens, and then, and yet still, and this sounds so cold. But then, how you respond to that situation it matters, you know. And I've, 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 um, I shouldn't say I worked with. I've, I've entered into dialogues and hosted conversations with people involved in uh, sex trafficking and some of that world. And they, by and large, uh, they, they're obviously given permission to what kind of label would you like? Do you want to be a victim? What do you want to be? They almost, to one hundred percent will say something to the effect of, I would rather be considered a survivor than a victim. Like I, I made it through something difficult, but that's not my identity. Absolutely. I am not that. And, and oftentimes our uh, at least the ones in, in the circle I was talking to were from a minority community. And so it's like, that's a totally different perspective. Mm-hmm. And so you're talking about an identity issue in some ways. And so what kind of factors do you think, or what kind of things, um, Reinforce that identity of a victim, but also at the level of narrative, but also at practical realities too. What reinforces that and then perpetuates that, if that makes sense?
1: Oh, man. <laughs> uh, there's so many. Um, so, for well, one, I asked because I know you've written, written about one some of. The, Yeah, yeah. Um, so, the biggest one I would say is the media. Uh, the media reinforces victimhood. Um, it, victimhood is profitable for, for the media. Um, also, being a victim is, is very, um, in some ways, profitable for the government as well. You know, the idea that you are able to vote for a politician who's going to give you something because you are a victim of something else. So, we can use reparations, for example. The idea that I need money from the government that is unearned, that is not related to anything I've done specifically, taking tax money away from everybody, including other Black people, to give towards myself for what reason? And is it just because superficially I'm Black? I mean, that's why I even poke in in the book, I ask the question, what are the stipulations behind reparations? I'm half Trinidadian, my father's from Trinidad, do Mm -hmm. I get half of the money, you know? So like, how does this work? Um, Are we to think that if reparations was to happen, that the government would give us one check and that would be it? Because once you open up that Pandora's box, especially when it comes to the government, they are likely to go back to it. And, And on top of that, even if reparations was to never happen, the government uses reparations as as like a, a, a toy to, to pull black people along or to, to signal towards them. Um, and I, I've seen this multiple times with the, especially on the, on the, with the Democrats, they, they love to bring up reparations when it suits them. You know, when they go into a state that has a higher black proper, uh, population, they use certain keywords, they use reparations, they, they talk about prison reform. When they go to New Hampshire, they mention nothing about it. And it's very purposeful you know it it is it is a manipulation tactic and people fall for it all the time and i fell for it at, at certain points um but um you know the media the government they all they all profit in some ways around people feeling like they're victims um the other side to it comes within the community so i talk a lot about the role of the father and From my perspective, if you have a healthy father within the home, he wouldn't allow his child to feel helpless. And that's what being a victim is, you're someone who is helpless to your circumstance. You know, I have a son, and if my son is woe as me about something, my job, my number one job is to make him feel reassured that he can continue doing what he's doing. I'd be a terrible father to be like, yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate, I mean, can you believe this happened? You know, and, and I just fed into his insecurity. I, my job is to do the complete opposite, is to reinstall security within himself to, to help with his, uh, his um, confidence. And when I, when I talk about the role of the father, and then you look at the statistics, and I talk about my personal story, not growing up with my father, and how I lack confidence, how I lack security, you know, I am not the only one who experienced this. And the, the absence of the natural born security maker for boys and girls within the home has allowed for a gaping hole for victimhood to really take hold within the family. And, and that's why I, I, you know, the first few chapters, I'm, I'm really talking about family. I'm talking about the role of fathers, the role of mothers, um, and how certain things are are pulling have or have pulled us apart. And family is number one, you know, family, once the family starts uh, to separate, that's when the community to, uh, really started to separate. So in order to fix a lot of our issues, we need a really deep thinking um, actions when it comes to how we procreate, uh, how we interact with each other, and we need a strong reunification within the family in order to rebuild what we had lost. Because we were, at times, the most married demographic within America uh, pre-civil rights. Now uh, you know, we are the most separated family unit within the country and, and within a particular demographic. And we have legit issues internally between men and women within our community. There is, there are some issues as far as how women view men and how some of the men view women, and there are legitimate concerns on both ends, and it is a conflict. And, and I, I kind of dive deeper into into the book as to why that's the case, or, or at least, uh, just even discussing those particular viewpoints um, that maybe certain people aren't aware of, but. I, I think those are those are really big influences. The separation of the family, the media, and the government, especially. Um, those are those are elements that are that are really impactful when it comes to black Americans and uh and and feeling like a victim on a consistent basis.
0: Yeah, and I don't mean it in a a conspiratorial way at all, but those systems or those, uh, those different, uh, networks and and hubs, they sort of are symbiotic with each other. They sort of feed off one another. And it's, it's, it's a tragedy. It's insanely sad, um, to see that happen because it has a predatory nature to it almost. Right. It's the media is on the one hand using, using the division of folks for the headlines, the clicks, the whatever, if it bleeds, it leads, they know that. So they're reinforcing that. And even, uh, manufacturing narratives that like you said like George Floyd incident was a tragedy in and of itself but then to objectify that and use that to perpetuate a narrative that is kind of loose and fast and then the government comes in and, and the government mm. thrives off of our division and our our experience of chaos because they can come in and say we'll provide some order in your life you know you need us right and uh, you, you can't get on right. as an individual or a family and 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 then, and part of their, their aid, their help, quote unquote, is uh, forcing. I've seen this happen. And I know, I'm sure you have too. You probably, I believe you've talked before and wrote in your book about Mm -hmm. experiencing this. So many black women, not that they don't, they're purely victims. Like I'm not going against your book, but they are put into an impossible position sometimes Mm -hmm. to choose between a man and the government. Right. And I've, I've literally watched this happen, not just I've seen this happen with Hispanic communities locally, where we helped house a person um, through our church community, uh, house a man and two of his kids because the wife and the other two kids were able to find housing, but he couldn't get any help. And they were still married, but it was like they had to function as separated individuals in order to get help uh, from the government. And that kind of thing happens often. And it's again, this is what I mean about it being symbiotic and all the rest. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So I want to um, I want to unpack something with you, Adam, because you you're addressing some things here and you're doing it. There's sort of there's these caricatures and sort of free black thought or, you know, there's these, there's free black thought. But then there's these sort of caricatures like she's not the worst person in the world, like a Candace Owen type. Like she sort of is playing a character at times, it seems like. But you're like you're being nuanced. You're being thoughtful. You're, you're being. Uh, intentional about it, which I really appreciate so I want to just affirm that um, as we continue to talk about this because an immediate pushback that people bring up when you say some of the things you just said is something to the effect of you're kind of critiquing Mm -hmm. the activist wing of things and someone might push back and say yeah like we're not saying the uh, the problems you just suggested don't exist we're just saying this problem is super important right now and uh, attention that I feel when that comes up is like we're not allowed to actually talk about the problems you're talking about I don't feel like it at least you know I feel like that's 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 a no-no to talk about the things that you're talking about what what is going on there what's your opinion of that
1: yeah I, I think you're right um unfortunately a lot of what happens with black people that is brought up into the mainstream becomes politicized so You know the idea of talking about single parent homes or to be more specific um female-led homes and in the separation of the family what what that turns into is being said uh that's a right-wing talking point right i understand it to a degree but it doesn't mean that it's false you know just because you don't like that i'm saying it doesn't mean that it's incorrect and I, I have numbers to bear it, and I have eyeballs, and, you know, and I have personal experiences. Um, and, and granted, my experiences, that these are anecdotal, but that's why I use statistics to kind of back up what I'm saying, and to at least clarify, like, I'm not crazy by what I see and what I've experienced, and the attitudes of the people that maybe I see online or I meet in person, you know, there's there's a big problem that's happening, and when I look at a ton of statistics to try and figure out what is the major divide between Black Americans and, and any other demographic, the the most glaring is the single parent homes. You know, we are in the high sixty percent, I think it was sixty seven percent or around there, as far as children who are raised in single parent homes, whereas. All the other demographics, Hispanics are in the 40, 40 percent um, are in that situation, white Americans are about uh, 25%. So, you know, that is a major difference between 25% and 67%. And so if I'm able to look at human behavior and and you know, the role of the father, the role of family, what what does that 60% 67% mean? How does that actually affect people? These are realistic questions to, to ask, and and it makes sense to examine it. And then when you say, okay, I know what, what happens when the father is removed from the home or the father's not involved, or um, the lack of masculinity, and all these different things, it only makes sense as to why there is there are such there's such a gap. There's hyperviolence, um, hypersexuality, and uh, in, in a very Uh, in a pocket within the culture not obviously not everybody but just there's a pocket of culture that it is very high amount and you know i i talk about the book it's very uncomfortable to say this but half of the violent crimes that happen in america are committed by someone like myself and you know i am part of a six percent uh demographic within this country and a six percent demographic Is committing half of the violent crimes something is off there you know something is 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 completely disproportionate what could be the cause and yes obviously there are a bunch of different factors that come into play but in my opinion racism is far lower on the list of things to really be concerned with and to me that's a good thing this is not saying um racism isn't important at all, right? But why go towards something that is not fixable? You know, you can't fix racism. I can't convince you to think a completely different way unless I put a lot of effort into it and I persuade you and, and not necessarily trying to make you feel guilty, but it's, it's a very social change. And, the, and America went through that through decades, especially after civil rights. So we've gone through the slow social change where there is progress. So that has moved racism far down the list. Now, that to me, that's a good thing. That means that our problems that exist are our problems and we can fix it. Since we're the ones who have caused it in, in many ways, we're responsible for it. So because we're responsible for it, that means that we can change it and we can fix it. I think that the you brought up before how like... Um, and I, I hate to do this because I like her. You know, people talk about Candace Owens the, and, they, and they mention other Black conservatives. What I'm trying to do is not necessarily trying to dunk on anybody. And I think someone like Candace Owens is always misinterpreted as chastising Black people. Mm-hmm. They, people are more concerned with the delivery versus the message. Candace is 100% correct just about everything that she says in my opinion. I, I, I completely agree with the problems that she's stating. Um, not necessarily Candace but I think other Black conservatives where they fall short on is really going in depth as far as why it's a problem. So it's, it's very easy to say the family split apart. Well why is it split apart? Mm-hmm. And let's be realistic as far as why. And so I like within the book. I try not to go into history too much because one, I'm not a history teacher, and two, uh, you know, I think far too often we go, we we are are so hyper focused on history that it's to our detriment because all we do is live in the past, and that's been one of the biggest hurdles that we we face is because in the past we were victimized to a larger degree. And so we are constantly in the in the past, especially for the majority of us who never even lived there. I wasn't born pre-civil rights or even during civil rights. You know, mm-hmm. I was born in 84. You know, my, my look and outlook on life is vastly different than someone who was born in 1950. So the the idea that we should all, including the younger generation, which the younger generation are the activists for the most part, are to live this experience of either slavery or civil rights on a constant basis to constantly be re-traumatized about something that they never personally experienced is extremely detrimental and it, and it it doesn't do us any good um, but all in all I, I i'm kind of veering away a little bit but i don't think um, so i i think i think the, the in general it's I'm, I'm trying to be thoughtful in the book by going deeper into the actual problem in a realistic and logical way and and people can disagree but and that's fine but as long as you understand how I'm coming to the conclusion as to what and, and what the points that I'm trying to make and I think that's that's the biggest thing is to give people another perspective not everything is simple you know there' for very large social uh social complexities within this world far often it is extremely complex it's not simple and i feel like a lot of times we take complex things and say it is a result of something simple and then we take simple things and make it complex you know we we do this backward games so many times yeah so you know, the idea that all, all the, the solution or the problem is always either white supremacy or racism to every problem that we experience, solves nothing, has never solved anything, and will never fix anything. Because those aren't the problems, uh, th- those aren't the, uh, the reasons why we are having problems in the first place today. Now, a pre-civil rights, different story different topic but we live in today we live in the present and far too often we're we're being we're being suggested to always revisit our past and and that's that's where a lot of that's why i talk about this whole trauma um comes in the historical trauma that we're being told to constantly remember Mm -hmm. constantly bring up you know the association of police with slave catchers you know it's this it's a rhetoric that is to constantly remind you to know your place within America, you know, and your place is below everybody else. It's, it's a very victim uh, narrative and and it is constantly uh, perpetuated.
0: It is. And uh, there's, there's something going on there. Like it's not only activist types. Like we mentioned, there's media, there's, I know you've mentioned another play in your book, there's academia, there's, there's government, there's Mm -hmm. uh, local things within families and all the rest but it requires it's such a tension for me adam because it's like on the one hand it'll be something like an activist says something like racism exists and that's a problem and i'm like yeah like that's not good right like we agree and then um (laughs) the, the suggested solution is something to the effect of we need to have a racialized thinking about everything that's how we fix racism it's like wait a second hold we need to presume that people are monoliths like remove their individual their autonomy that i could look at you adam and presume everything about you your experience i don't you don't need to tell me Mm -hmm. who you are you don't need to tell me the story in your book because i already know who you are i know your experience in the world i know how hard you've had it in x y and z circumstances like and then you can do the same to me and it's like that is not a solution that is a a de-evolution for sure but it's chaos inducing. And it's exactly Smart. what you said about oversimplifying very complex things. Because human beings are way dynamic. You talk to a person and you realize even within the black community, just like within the white community, there is a variety of thought on a variety of not just issues, realities, family, all sorts of things. And you can't get down to that beautiful dynamism without like genuine conversation and not treating people as monoliths. We, we totally lose the ability oh, yeah. to humanize one another when we do this stuff. And uh, I want to I talk about, as we move toward like some solutions and stuff, we've, we've, we've really painted a problem here. But before we jump into the solutions, maybe you could share some of your personal story because you mentioned you moved from having, you yourself had maybe a victim mentality or at least were uh, attracted to this at times in your upbringing and you moved. And so what was that move or how mm-hmm. did that happen? And then let's talk about some
1: solutions for sure. Um, well, so to go back a little bit, so, you know, uh, I'm a product of a single parent home. My father was barely in my life. Um, I would get one or two phone calls from him a year. Um, if I might see him once a year, um, especially after the age of five, we had moved, uh, moved to a different state. So inevitably seeing us was more difficult because we moved out of state, but, um, Hearing from him, his involvement, it was extremely minimal. Um, I've thought about it. I, I don't really think uh, that my mother was hindering him. You know, all indications show that he had little to no interest. Um, you know, he paid child support through the government. And that's, we got our, you know, I think it was like a $50 check um, every so often. so, you know, that, that was the extent... Of my relationship with my with our father, because of this, because of my mother raising two children on her own, you know, there were a couple times that we ended up being homeless, and, you know, we, I, you know, I remember, we would bounce from hotel to hotel. Um, at one point, uh, we stayed with uh, this this one nice lady who was essentially a stranger. We stayed in her her uh, trailer, um, and she only had one room, and we all would fit in there while my mother is going to work. And see, that's the thing. Like people misunderstand homeless as being like one monolithic, you know, uh, experience. My mother was always working. Mm -hmm. You know, while we were going from hotel to hotel, my mother was always working. Uh, My mother wasn't trying to get, you know, uh, public assistance. She wasn't trying to take advantage of anything. My mother was always going against that. And, you know, as much as my father wasn't in my life, there are certain things that I do admire about my mother that she didn't take those routes because those routes were perfectly laid open for her. We could have lived in the project somewhere. We could have gotten public assistance and my mom could have completely given up. Mm -hmm. And that would have been my influence. And, you know, uh, going through those experiences and, uh, you know, at times feeling like I I didn't know what it was to be a man. Uh, I didn't really have any male role models. I wasn't around men. Uh, You know, I was around other boys, but I needed to be around men to kind of give me guidance. And I talked about the confidence and and the the role of the father, a role of other men when they see younger, you know, boys, to, Mm -hmm. to reinstall confidence, to tell them, like, you can do this. And and boys need to hear that. Boys need some direction. They need a confidence boost. They need to understand what it's like to be masculine uh, and what it means to be healthy, uh, healthy in your masculinity. Those things were missing for me in my life. And it doesn't mean that I I was incapable of getting it. I am those things today. But what I'm saying is it took me three decades to get there. And for, for a child... Who has that father, that father is a shortcut in life from my perspective. And, you know, not for nothing, one of, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I thought about legacy. I thought about something, leaving something behind for my son. And my, my son is now reading the book. You know, he's, uh, he's 15 years old and he, he's reading the book. And he told me how, uh, you know, chapter two, I talk about the role of fathers and how the importance of fathers. And he said how much that meant to him because he never he knew about my history. He knew about my situation and my father not being around. But he didn't really know. He didn't fully understand until I laid it out within that chapter. And it made him appreciative of the shortcuts and the things that he doesn't have to worry about. I've always been in my son's life. Um, and I've always shown that I've cared. And when he screws up, I get pissed off. And when he succeeds, I'm happy. And all of those things shows that I care about him. And those are the things that were missing for myself. Now, I wanted to use my story to make a point because if 60% of boys or 60% of children within the household, and this affects boys and girls in a different way, but let's say not all 60% are going exactly through what I'm going through. But let's say it's majority of that that is not good for our racial demographic that in, in, in any other demographic because it, it's becoming a growing problem in america just in general but our issue uh it, it's not good at all and if i am one example of this i know i am one of many of examples that are experiencing this and i'm one of the lucky ones who is able to come out of it i don't have a record you know I never got locked up I, I didn't get into fights I, I I never got into the violent side of things I went in the opposite i you know the opposite realm of it um, so you know I am fortunate for in a lot of ways even though you may on the surface say I was unfortunate in some ways mm-hmm. so I try to look at it in in a variety of different ways um, as far as my upbringing but I, I don't think we talk enough uh, about how fathers affect children. You know, I talk about it from a male perspective, but I also talk about it from a female perspective because it definitely plays a role within, uh, you know, for, for a lot of women who need that important father figure to show them what a real man looks like. Yeah. And that is, that is who they're, that is like the, the arch, archetype mm-hmm. uh, or the prototype of what they're going to choose as a partner in the future. You know, without that, they are kind of lost. You know, they're going to pick the manipulators, the abusers, uh, you know, they're going to pick all these different guys that are not suitable for them. and, And it's going to ruin their life. They're going to get pregnant by these guys. They're going to procreate and they're going to create more single parents, more single families, more children like myself. And so um, I wanted to highlight all these things and give a general understanding, regardless of what you look like. But if you're Black and you're young and you're reading this book, maybe it gives you some pause the next time you go and lay down with a, a man or a woman. And it says, you know what? Maybe I should second, th- second think this. Or maybe I should be more careful with this. Or maybe I should wear protection. Or maybe I should, you know... It's those particular things. Maybe this person isn't the right person to be with, because if you make that step and whether it be an accident or not, and you bring that child into this world, there's no reversing that, Mm -hmm. you know, you are now accountable and are you going to put them in a situation like myself, where I grew up lost, where there's dysfunction, homelessness, poverty, you know, all these different things. Do you want that for someone who is half of your blood? You know, that is something deep to really think about. And I don't think a lot of people think about that beforehand. They think about it after and including myself, you know, I'm critical of myself because um, my son and his mother, uh, uh, my son's mother, we're not together, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I tried my best to try and make up for it. And I get along with her and we co-parent. And so that minimizes the hurt that my son could potentially experience. But it is way more ideal to find someone that you could marry, that you could have a long-term successful relationship, so you can potentially have that secure home for your child. Mm -hmm.
0: And I know more people are going to read your book, Adam. um, But man, God, that's such a beautiful story of your son reading it. Uh, Even if only that happened from all the work you put into this, that is, in my opinion, so worth it. So worth it. Uh, The impact that that has absolutely or that is having on him it's uh it's it's life-changing it's it's it really is i mean that's so cool and because here's yeah. the deal you're, you're bringing up this idea you brought it up a few times about um not just fathers in the home but quality fathers in the home right men of men of virtue right and this idea of exactly so right. i mean you're you because you've talked about young men and young women having different issues but let's just talk about the young men like young men's issues are oftentimes mm-hmm. an energy that has no regulation to it so an energy toward violence right a physicality or something like that or an energy towards sexuality yeah. that's sort of uncontrolled and you need a, a man in your life to show you that that energy is not wrong in and of itself but it needs to have a control to it, it needs to have like a self-control it needs to be regulated right um and, and or however you want to say that discipline right. maybe we might say But that idea, so much of that is instilled through a father, not just as an example, but as a guide along the way as you're figuring it out, because it's we're a mess, right? Like we made tons of mistakes and you need someone there to to pick you up, to celebrate your wins, like you said, to get pissed off when you make stupid decisions. You need that along the way, especially when you're spending that energy, because unchecked it cashes out in a lot of the ways you're talking about toward physicality that might be violence or sexuality that might be just kind of wherever you feel desired. And it's like, that is, you need that. You need the Moms can make up the difference as best they can, but man, the compliment of a man and a woman raising a child together with so much intentionality is so beautiful and necessary. And and yeah, you're right. Um, in that, and so I think one of the solutions you've talked about a decent amount is like, we need not just fathers. We need decent fathers. And I'm, I'm come from a, so you mentioned statistics earlier. I come from a Mm -hmm. rural community. Um, there's a lot of uh, just broken families they may not be necessarily all single parents but very dysfunctional very broken families divorced a handful of times remarried every other year kind of vibe like it's it and I'm not saying like that's all that existed there's plenty of quality families too but but that's there and it it, it creates cycles of dysfunction for sure and so a way to break that cycle is to the Absolutely. individual to own themselves And to help create a family, which, again, is so cool that your son's reading this book and that this could be impactful for him to be a part of that solution. So beyond that, um, what are some other solutions that you talk about toward the end of the book? I want to I want to hone in a little bit, too. You've mentioned God a handful of times and faith that that's a part of it. What are some of these practices that we can have for reunification?
1: Um. You know what? So, reunifying the family, it, I I believe is like the first solution uh, that I listed in there because I think it's the most important. Um, I think the maybe the second most important, in my opinion, when we're talking about American society, and and how we interact with people, you can you can go from a racial standpoint, uh, but you can extrapolate it to all different other areas, how we, how we interact with people, Um, you know, do we try to find common ground with other people, even if they appear different? Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, I have to not see you as a collective. I have to see you as an individual. And, you know, I talk about uh, within that chapter about my, my aunt Anne, my great aunt Anne, um, you know, my, my actual grandmother, she died when I was, uh, when I was really young, so I, I didn't really know her I, I don't I don't remember her, but my aunt Anne, my great aunt Ann, she was like my grandmother, and she, I, I would see her mostly on the holidays, we didn't live close by but um, to me, as someone who grew up kind of separated from other people we moved a, around a lot. Um, I was kind of sort of alone with just my immediate family. Her family is really the only family that I was a part of. And especially her, she was like the matriarch of the family. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, her husband had had passed away. So it, it was just her. And her love and acceptance of everybody that came through that door was something that always meant a lot to me. I would go there and I never felt judged. She respected everybody and she she wanted respect back. She was uh, you know very joyful. She was very loving and she didn't care what you looked like. You know one of her one of her closest friends who looked at her like a sister was white. She was a white neighbor and they lived they were neighbors for years and she was there uh, you know until the day that she died. Mm-hmm. And You know it it was it's one of those experiences that really means a lot to me um and when she passed it really it really hurt but it it's an example of how she was able to live a certain type of life a life of love a life of acceptance because she didn't care what you looked like she only cared about the character that you presented and I think there needs to be more of that but in order for that to happen I have to see you as an individual first I have to want to know you and know who you are um, you know within that chapter I talk about a guy that I met um, you know he's in his 70s he's white and you know he's a veteran you know the complete opposite of what I am you know mm-hmm. on a superficial level but when I started talking to him uh, you know we initially started talking, um, you know, somewhat around politics and conservatism, but I got to know him on a deeper level. And now he's like my biggest cheerleader, yeah. you know? And, and we, we talked about uh, what it's like to, for him to not grow up with his father. He doesn't even know who his father is to this day. And, you know, it's that connection. We don't look the same. We're not from the same background. We're, we have all these things that separate us, but forget all that. What brings us together? And even in that those moments, our trauma brought us together and that made us feel more human towards each other. And like, I care about him and he cares about me. And I'm telling you, he's one of the biggest cheerleaders of mine. And, and I appreciate that. And, and it that wouldn't exist if I only saw him as a white man who is older, you know, and just dismissed him. And and right. there's those things that, um, you know, I feel like... A, I feel like a lot of us, regardless of race, people in general, we are so stuck within our tribe and we see no value in other tribes. You know, I, I started traveling a few years ago and I just started meeting people. I just started talking to people um, and I wanted to know about them and I wanted to know what is it like to live in, you know, in Germany? What is it like to live in Spain or the United Kingdom or wherever? Mm-hmm. Tell me about your experience what's your perspective you know all these different things and you start to learn about different value systems that people have different ways of looking at the world and maybe how i live my life is okay for me but maybe i don't know everything maybe there's something to be learned from somewhere else maybe they're doing something right that i could bring into my life or maybe there's just there's just another way that we can bring each other together for a more cohesive environment and you know in some ways that way of looking at things is the cure for racism hmm. you know the you don't shame people into liking you what you do is you expose yourself to people and you you uh, display good nature you you display good characteristics and that will change people's minds When you allow yourself to be separated from other people, then this leads to the downfall of, you know, going into tribalistic viewpoints, uh, you know, hatred of superficial things. You know, it's a, it's a, you know, we're evolved beings and Mm we're capable of at least attempting to fight against our tribalism, which is built into us. And so all I'm encouraging is people to fight against that natural feeling of finding you know, your tribe and saying, screw the other. And you know, it's those particular things when you're able to fight against it. And, and my life has become even better because I opened myself up to, to so many other ways of thinking about things and, and wonderful people and just making my life more nuanced and, and realizing like not not everything is so simple not everything's so straightforward it's complex it's difficult uh, but there's a beauty within those complexities
0: yes absolutely and there there's something about so tribal thinking forces us in some ways to to treat one another as common enemies you know there's common friends but there's common enemies that we have and that's sort of how we form coalitions right and uh, you're right that's sort of a, a devolved mm-hmm. way of thinking because it is such a precious gift to be alive in such a time uh, that that even the idea of a common humanity is possible. I mean that it, it, it's just like out there that it's like an ideal that we could aim at. Like that is such a precious gift that we should be very uh, protective of and very serious about because. That is, we are more alike and more united than we are different, right? You're right. There's distinctions. There's cultural nuances. There's all Absolutely. sorts of things. There's right. even within subcultures, there can be like nuances and differences, but we are more alike than we are different. And I, what I love is, so MLK is behind me, a very imperfect man, right? Like it got awful to his wife in so many ways, but on the, on the things that you're talking about, the ideas of common humanity, and then some of the fix for this, which We didn't get into as much, but some of the fix for this, it's a sort of, and I I mean radical in in the realist way about it. It's sort of a radical grace or a radical enemy love that's willing to love the other even Mm -hmm. when they don't deserve it, right? And that is the only way that you break these cycles of tribalism. Because if we just play, and this is why, again, I'm not, we brought up Candace earlier just because she's known and kind of everyone knows who she is, but it's like sometimes, She has such an awesome opportunity. Maybe she wouldn't be as popular as she is if she did it because the internet sort of rewards the either or stuff. But it's like if she practiced enemy love at times, it's like there would be so much more healing and so much more uh reconciliation that could happen. But again, maybe she just wouldn't be as popular because the internet doesn't reward that. But she's right in so many of the things she says. But then if we if all of us like practice and not just her, like. You've mentioned this in other interviews and conversations. Like oftentimes we're looking for these figures to be saviors for us. Like us as the individual, if we practice enemy love, we can bring some of this reconciliation. And something I want to give you the last word on some solutions and some ways we can find this in God. But something I keep saying to people in my circles of influence and in relationship is like, if think about this. If if you get 60 more years on this earth, like it maybe for us, it's like. 40 more years if we're lucky, right? We're in our 30s. You know, you get 40 more years on this earth. On Mm -hmm. your deathbed, are you going to be super stoked that you spent a lot of time helping form and being formed by like 12 people, maybe 10 people, you know, that you really invested in between family and friends and whatever that you really made better and you were made better by? Are you going to be super stoked about that? Because that's realistic Mm -hmm. and possible. Or are you going to be super stoked that you shared a lot of hashtags when it was trendy? And you virtue signaled at the right time. You know what I mean? And that's not, I don't mean to present a false dichotomy, but that sort of seems like one, like you said earlier, is sort of fantasy driven, like rhetoric. And the other has like real practicality, measurable goals. It's precise, it's specific. Uh, Anyway, I think you'll be way more proud on your deathbed, any of us, if we get that many years that we spent a lot of time investing in 12, 20 so many people that also invested in others right that would be a win so um part of achieving this win uh for myself and it sounds like for you is as far as like a relationship with god and so for you what are some of these as we close what are some of the principles and why do you think that's so important for yourself even if it's just your own story
1: well um you know for me uh you know I am, it's always weird to kind of say, but I'm not the most religious person as in like, you know, I can't tell you, you know, certain scriptures backwards and forwards within the Bible, but I understand the general principles of Christianity. And I think the first step, the very first step is accepting God within your life. Um, and that was a big step for myself, especially because at one point in time, I consider myself agnostic um, you know, I, I didn't feel confident calling myself an atheist because I was just unsure. Um, but it was that it was that conflict that I had in my life and, you know, call a coincidence or what. But the more I started realizing that there's there are things that are greater than myself. And the more I started accepting the, the even the possibility of there being a greater being than myself and God existing. um you know, that led me towards a more prosperous living. Um, so it went from questioning to saying, I think there is something to saying, uh, I believe in him and also understanding that he is looking out for me and testing me mm-hmm. in some ways. And I, I strongly believe that, you know, uh, you know, God has given me the ability and, and, and everybody the ability to overcome. It's just a matter of, are we willing to see that? Are we willing to accept it? You know, it, it's one thing to have a superpower, but do you know that you even have that power? To, you know, we all have this ability to, to overcome our circumstance, to, to do these unbelievable things within our lives but if we don't believe in ourselves and we don't believe that god believes that we are capable or even that god has given us the ability to do the the near impossible or the seemingly impossible then that does us no good and that's how my life was going my life was going in a direction that was incredibly slow in progress or in some ways backwards mm-hmm. and and i and i think there there is a correlation with my my self-confidence, my belief in myself, and my belief in God. Um, And 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 it's almost not one-for-one, but it was almost a one-for-one situation within my life Mm -hmm. that I started to realize those particular things and it became even more important for myself. And I'm still growing when it comes to that. I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to grow when it comes to that, but just accepting. And I think a lot of people say that they are Christians or say they believe in God, but don't attempt to live by any of those principles. And, and I believe that if God has given you the ability singularly to do great things, why aren't you? Why aren't you trying? Why aren't you using that ability? Why aren't you using the love that he's given you to accept other people? You know, why are you accepting hatred of others that you don't even know as the reason for you to live a certain way? You know, it's those particular things that I think they're that I don't think a lot of people think about. I think we have a lot of default Christians. And that's at one point I was a default Christian Mm -hmm. where I was saying it because I went to the church, but I didn't believe it and i didn't necessarily live by it in some ways and i think it's important that we live by it in some ways at least in the general principle at least in the general idea you know like i said i, I i'm not i'm not one to cast judgment on people or or to say because you don't know the scripture or anything like that cuz i i struggle with that part too and i'm still growing when it comes to that mm-hmm. but i think it's incredibly important that we try to understand um how important it is to try and accept God within your life and actually live by it. Um, And you brought up something kind of important before. I think there's a lack of purpose for a lot of people. Um, You know, when you said, would you rather be known for helping the 12 people or for the hashtags? Those hashtags give people purpose, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And we have a crisis of purpose within Within this country, especially, I would personally bring it back to fathers because, I, you know, I I call it the purpose compass. You know, your father is your purpose compass. You know, he's supposed to help you lead in a direction, to have you some sort of purpose within this world. And without that purpose compass, we become lost. So, you know, there is definitely a crisis of purpose that's happening for a lot of people. Um, And they're directionless and they'll gravitate towards anybody that tells them to go in a particular direction and that is when you see the infatuation with political figures the infatuation with the celebrity uh the elites you know all these people who look big and grand but they don't mean anything to you in your real world you know your your father your family god those are the things that actually mean something and are influential to you in your actual in your real world and those other figures, they will use you up and spit you out all over and mm-hmm. they'll, they'll get what they want out of you and they'll put you to the side. The people who actually love you, who care about you, you know, find purpose within those people, you know, find a way to help other people find something that you're passionate about. You know, the, that gap in purpose is extremely, extremely uh, detrimental for a lot of people, especially young people who are struggling To figure out their life and and how they're supposed to grow into this world so it you know purpose is a very big word uh and and that's one of the solutions is finding purpose find purpose and find god um and and those those things will help you to bring a more joyful existence
0: yeah and dude i could i could talk to you for hours because that is it is such (laughs) man that is such a Meaning crisis, the purpose crisis, whatever we want to call it, that is a very, very real thing, and um, and that's this is something I hope and why I wanted to talk to you. um, But I'm loving talking to people like you. Is um, on the one hand, you mentioned like part of why you got into the book and how you some of your chapters obviously unpack this too. Is there's there's stats and facts and and just hard realities, and I don't mean harsh realities. I just mean like hard stats that. Don't always line up with narratives and all the rest. But here's the tension. We are narrative creatures. We are we are evolved in all the ways that you said. But part of the way we make sense of the world is narratives. It's stories. And I think it's in becoming, like we need to, people like you and I, we need to help provide a better story mm-hmm. than the one that's being on offer. Because you're right. The hashtags do provide, you're completely right. They do provide a sense of purpose for people. And so what we need to do is provide for them in that alternative view of like influencing the 12 or the 20 they might influence 20 more and like just accepting that being excited about that but then giving them a story about how cool that would be that would be amazing you know what i mean and not just a a false excitement but a real like right solution driven uh story and i think that's what you get into in the last half of the book and i'm glad we got to touch on some of that um this evening and so adam obviously people should go uh grab your book off Amazon, Barnes and Noble, pretty much wherever books are sold. But uh, where should we be following you on social media and all the rest before we sign off?
1: So uh, just to add, I'm, I'm also the founder of Wrong Speak Publishing. So, you know, we publish uh, articles occasionally. Um, if you go to www.wrongspeak.net, uh, you can read some of the articles, some of them written by myself, a majority are written by myself. Um, but other articles are written by uh, other people who want to contribute, and I encourage people to contribute. Um, you know, if you want to be heard, if you want to express yourself, you know, we're, we're all about free speech, but we're, we're also about uh, thoughtful ways of expressing yourself. Um, so yeah, please come to wrongspeak.net uh, and, uh, and check that out. As far as social media goes, uh, I'm on Facebook. You can go to uh, facebook.com slash uh, W-R-I-T-E-S, um, and on uh, Twitter, I'm under wrong underscore speak, um, so you can follow me on there um, for the occasional tweet. Um, you can also find wrong speak on uh, MeWe and, and other free speech platforms. I try to be active on there uh, as well. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm always open for dialogue, and I'm trying to get people to speak more freely You know, especially if people want to write books as well, express themselves. You know, so I'm trying to I'm trying to help other potential authors to get over that hurdle to to publishing, to get their message out. Um, And and, you know, it's a long process, and it's challenging, but it's rewarding as well. Especially when you know people like yourself get to read it and understand um, my perspective and where I'm coming from and and my demeanor as far as a very difficult topic.
0: Yes, yes. yes. And, and and all the things you just said, you're, you're big on free speech. You're, you're an interesting thinker. I don't want to just throw the word heterodox around, but you're a free thinker, which I love. Um, and so Adam <laughs> Coleman, thanks for making yeah. time for this. And uh, I'll tell you what, um, if you're open to it, when you publish your next book, which I know you're writing, let's do it again, all right? Absolutely. Yeah, good deal. Well, hey, um, thanks again. We'll
1: talk soon.